And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Billy Stanley, who died and on the other side encountered his stepbrother, Elvis. Billy, thank you for joining me and welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, Jeff. Billy, can we start on the day that you died and go from there? Sure. Um, it was just a typical day, really. I mean, it was a Saturday. It was uh, uh, May 19th, 2018. And I'd run some errands. And I came home and was feeling a little bit tired, like I wanted to take a nap. So I was sitting on the couch. And the next thing, I mean, I'm watching this movie and I, I, my brother was sitting on the couch with me. I said, I, I think I'm going to take a nap or something. So I did. And so the next thing I know is I'm, I'm standing in this open space and it, it looks like I'm standing on clouds. It's just flat. I mean, they weren't moving or anything. It was just flat, white, soft white. And I, I was, it was so bright and I looked, I was looking for the light source. That's the first thing I, I did. Cause I was, wow, I've never seen it this bright before. And I was looking around. I never looked backwards. I just kind of looked forward and I never, I never saw a light source. Like you know, in the daytime, it's bright, you know, here on earth but you know where i was at <laughs> i've never seen it that bright before and then the first thing i noticed before i start after when i couldn't find it i went this overwhelming sense of love like i've never felt before in my whole life it was just overpowering it just overcomes you and just it starts radiating from you this love that you feel and i started looking around a little bit and that's when i noticed that it was it was crowded and when i say crowded i mean I couldn't, they weren't close enough for me to make out their faces, but I could see different skin tones and hair colors. And I, you know, that, that was, I'd never seen that many people before in my whole life. I was just, wow. So I, I kind of, I looked down a little bit. And I wanted to go, let's, let's see if I can walk on this. So I took a small little step forward and I see, I saw that I could and I just, okay. And then I started looking back up and I was just looking around again at all the people. And then I noticed a city kind of off to the right. It, well, it, look, it looked like a city. It looked like it had a wall, but it had, and then it had a golden hue to it. It was just kind of radiating from the top. And something said, that's where you got to go. It was just, you know, it was like a boy said, that, okay, that's where you got to go. So I started walking. And now... When I walk here on earth and everything, I kind of walk a little fast. I've always been like that. But up there, I was, there, was no, there was no sense of time. There was nothing. I mean, all I was feeling was just that love and that happiness and joy that was just overpowering. And I was the happiest I've ever been. And I was walking and I was, at, it looked like there was, I was walking, you know, the people, there were people in front of me, but as I was walking, they would kind of like disappear or fade off you know, fade away, kind of like parting. Because uh, then I, I looked down again, and it looked like a flat, the surface was a little bit more rigid looking. It was white, but the cloud looking thing was on the edges about maybe this tall, but, you know, up on the edges. And that was the path that I was supposed to walk to along. 
So I was walking along, just looking at all the people and just, you know, there was no sense of time. That's the first thing I noticed was, I mean, usually when I walk here, I walk fast, like I said, but up there, there was no urgency. Um, I mean, I couldn't tell, you couldn't tell time at all. So I see a figure standing in front of me as I'm walking and they've got their back to me. And I walk up a little bit closer and I get within about five or six feet from them and they turn around and I see it's Elvis. Elvis, it's great to see you. And he, the great thing about, I don't know about everybody's NDA, but I mean, NDE or near death experiences. In mine, he turned around and he said something, but he, his mouth didn't move. It was like I could hear his thoughts. He said, Billy, it's great to see you. He reached out. And so I walked up to him and he gave me a hug and he patted me on the back and I patted him on the back. And I was just about to ask him something. And that, that's when all of a sudden it's like the old cartoons, how it closes in on a circle. And it, that's how it closed out. But it was, I was focused on looking at Elvis. And that's when he passed on this message. He said, tell my family, friends and fans, I love them. I'll see them when they get here. And I, I was starting to get a little bit scared and it was closing in on his face. And then I heard another voice said, no doubt, no fear. Now I knew immediately who that was. That was God. I could sense him to the right, but I couldn't look at him. And there was just something that said, you can't look at, you can't look at God. You can't put your eyes on God. So I just, I just, okay. And then that's when I came to, and I was laying on the floor and everybody's standing above me, my, my wife and my brother and two daughters are there. And I was trying to get up. I said, what am I doing down here? You know, they said, no, 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 you can't get up. The paramedics are coming up. I said, what do you mean the paramedics? And the, the whole experience that I went through, I was dead for 10 minutes. They was trying to resuscitate me and everything like that. Took 10 minutes. And so I, that's how long I was gone. But to me, it was only like a few seconds. That's what, you know, what I... So I said, what do you mean the paramedics? They said, Billy, just stay right here. You're going to the emergency room. Okay, so the paramedics came up and got me. They took me to the ER, and my wife told them what happened. And next thing I know, they, they put me in doing surgery. Uh, they would put a stent in my heart because uh, I had the blockage on, the, on your heart, on the backside of your heart. There's what they call the widow maker. It's an artery. It was clogged. But I suffered a... What, what they told me after the surgery, I suffered a heart attack, stroke, and seizure, all three at the same time. Because my wife and my brother said, when when it happened, I, was, I was, David said I was just laying there asleep. Next thing, I started shaking real bad, and then I planked, and then I just went, I went limp. And that's when, you know, everybody was freaking out, trying to figure out what to do. And my daughter had just seen a video the week before on how to do CPR. So they would give me CPR on the couch and they, they was talking to 911 at the same time. And they said, it's not working. They said, is he still sitting or is he on the floor? They said, he's in the couch. They said, put him on the floor. And so they kept going. And uh, I, I finally came to, you know, but uh, after I had the surgery and everything, the doctors, you know, would tell me what happened and said, you're lucky. Most people suffer some sort of paralysis and everything else when you have all three at the same time. And I was going, okay. And I, 
And I, now I've got a severe phobia of doctors and hospitals and stuff. So I said, when can I get out of here? And they said, well, we want to monitor you for a little bit. And I said, okay. And they said, i tell you what, though, when you show us you can walk down the end of the hall and back, I said, I'll run down to the end of the hall and back if you want me to. Because <laughs> I was ready to get out of there. So uh, after two days, they said, okay, I had to take this little pole with me because they had me hooked up these IVs and stuff. So I walked down there and walked back. I was, I felt great. I mean, it, I, I, I didn't feel like anything had happened. That's when, as when I came ap after the surgery, that's when they started telling me what happened to me. And so I didn't say anything about what happened to me while I was out or gone for at least two months because this kept going through my brain. What happened here? You know, I, and I started doing a little research on it and, you know, finding out about near death experiences. I started, you know, researching it because I want to know because I think I just had one, you know, and then I found out after five minutes, you know, the blood starts going to your brain. So there is no more dreams. So what I experienced was no dream. <laughs> and so uh, after about two months, I, you know, I was, you know, I, I've always been a Christian, but I started praying, okay, God, what am I supposed to do with what just happened to me? What, what's been revealed to me? And it was about three o'clock one morning, uh, I was awakened and said, you're supposed to share this with everybody. And so that's when I told my wife first thing. And then I told my brother, David, he was, he was staying with us at the time. And I said, you know, this is what happened to me when, when you guys told me what happened, you know, after when I, during the heart attack, stroke and seizure, I said, this is what I experienced. And they, oh my God, Billy. Yeah. You, you got to tell people about this. So one thing led to another, and uh, I got a book deal. I mean, I wasn't looking for a book deal. It was just, it, would you would you sh care to share this experience and, you know, you share the faith of Elvis in this book, you know, the faith of Elvis? I said, yeah. So that's how that came about. And uh, the book was released last last year in October. And, uh, you know, I... I I haven't talked to a lot of people about it because some people get a little bit weirded out when you talk about it. They, you know, they just don't want to hear it or they, they don't know how to accept it or so. Uh, but in one of the great things, I've kind of gotten ahead of myself, but one of the great things is when, when God talks to you, he doesn't have to explain things to us because he says it to us in a, in such a simple way, because he knows we are just simple creatures, even though we think we're, almighty and everything we're not but when he said no doubt no fear i knew exactly what he meant no doubt there is a heaven and no fear this is where you're going to go so you know my life has been a lot different since then <laughs> it's like okay i've i've seen the payoff and you know it and everything that i learned as a kid when i was going to church and everything else is true you know and if if you believe this, it's, you know that's that's where you're gonna go. And uh, it's it's been one of the greatest the greatest experience. I call everybody calls it a, a near death experience. I call it a near God experience because I you know I was that close, but I you know there was just something that said yo you can't you can't look at him. <laughs> you can look at Elvis, but you can't look at God. Billy, thank you for sharing your experience with us. Yeah. When you first crossed over, did you realize you were dead? Were you 
thinking you were in a dream or were you just confused and not knowing what's going on? I didn't know what was going on because it's unlike any dream I've ever had before where in dreams and stuff, I, I think you may sense certain things and stuff, but this was so surreal. And what, I mean, all my, my sight, my hearing, you know, uh, my touch, everything was there, you know, which unlike in a lot of dreams, you know, I mean, I, I don't recall anything smelling anything. So, uh, but it, it was, it was no dream. I know that because I did the research, you know, I said, okay, now what is, was this a dream? Because, you know, I had my doubts for a long time, was it? Until I started researching and when they said medical science says, you know, when the blood quits going to your brain after five minutes, there is no more dreaming. You know, the brain dies. Now, <laughs> I sit there and I talk to my doctor sometimes and I still do go, you know, he said, well, you may not have any, you know, you don't show any physical. I said, but it's mental. I said, because trust me, there's a lot of things that I said, you know, I feel I feel a lot different than I did before. You know, sometimes I feel like I have I'm, I am going crazy or something, but I know I'm not. It's just that, you know, that blood was shut off to the brain for a while. So it's, there's going to be some after, you know, after effects to that. So I kind of feel sometimes like those movies. What was it? Uh, Final Destination or whatever that was. Those things. I cheated death, you know, it's like, oh, man, you know, I keep looking to make sure I'm not standing in water when I'm shaving or something, <laughs> you know, who's like Grim Reapers after me, you know, but I'm not afraid of death anymore. So, you know, I, right. I don't really care. Whose voice do you think it was that told you to go to the city? That I don't know. Because it, it was a completely different voice than the one that said, no doubt, no fear. I mean, the, the no doubt, no fear was no doubt, no fear. Just almost like, uh, who was the guy that did CNN? <laughs> you know, it was like almost like that voice. I was, oh, okay. But the voice that said, uh, that's where you're supposed to go. It was almost like a, a just kind of a casual whisper type thing. That's where you're supposed to go. Because, I, I mean, I was bewildered. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was just standing there, just looking around. I mean, it, it, I probably stood there. I, well, I can't tell you how long I stood there because it was there's no sense of time. So, but it felt like I've stood there for quite a while, just looking at everything around me. And then, uh, then I noticed the city, and when I saw that, that's when the voice said, "That's where you're supposed to go." Do you feel like it was even more real than you and I sitting here talking today? Oh yeah, a lot more real. <laughs> it's you know, I mean, it, it's. It's so surreal is what it is. I mean, because it's, I mean, they don't call it heaven for nothing. It is the greatest experience I've ever had in my life. And when I try to compare the love that you feel, the first thing that you feel, that overwhelming sense of love, there is no words to describe it. I mean, except for, I'll try to say the first time you ever fell in love or if you have any children or anything like that. Now magnify that a hundred million trillion times. That's what you actually feel. It consumes your whole body. You feel from your head to your toes. You feel that love. I mean, not like what you feel here, you know, in your heart, you see your whole being in your hands everywhere. And I've never felt that kind of love. You were walking around at first and you saw all these people. What, right. what were they doing? They looked like they were standing there talking to each other. 
And it was, and they were, they were looking at me like, oh, here's the new kid, <laughs> you know, but they, they weren't pointing or anything. They was just looking, you know, at me and I could see them talking to each other. You know, some of them weren't facing me. Some were facing each other and then some were facing me, but they was just kind of watching me walk, you know, but the, the strange thing was they, they were in front of me in front of the city, but as I was walking towards the city, they parted. And I, I couldn't get close to them, except for that one, the one person that stayed was stood right there. And I was I was kind of surprised at that because everybody else was kind of moving away as I was walking toward them, except for the one. And he had his back to me until I got up close to him. And he turned around and that's Elvis. <laughs> wow. And then, but I never knew, I I, I didn't know where I was at. I mean, you know, a lot of people say they knew where they were. No, I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know until after I came back. I mean, I kind of had an I, I had a little bit of an idea, but, that, you know, here again, I was just too folk. I was so consumed with the love and the way I felt and everything. I didn't think about anything else. I mean, everything else was gone from my mind there. It was clear. You know, I mean, that in itself, a mind clearing experience where your next conscious thoughts are just of what's on, what's going on around you. There's no past. There's no anxiety. There's no fear. There's nothing. There's none of that. It's just you're there, and you're, you're overwhelmed with this sense, overwhelming sense of love and joy, the happiest I've ever been in your life. And you see all these people, and that's all I was thinking about. I mean, that's all I could. I really wasn't thinking about that. I was just going, "Wow, this place is so crowded." But I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And then that's when that voice, that's where you're supposed to go. What's interesting to think about is that you're already feeling amazing, this immeasurable amount of love. And then how can it get any better than seeing your brother? Exactly. You know, that's uh, now that see that sometimes I get a little bit emotional because um, what a great way to be welcome to heaven, you know. I mean, you know, it, it was like he was there to just say, you're not here for the full stay, Billy. You're just this just a brief visit type thing, you know, and it, I, I just never forget the way he looked like he looked like he did when he was 25 years old. When I first saw him, I was seven years old and he was just like so happy, you know, he was. You know, everybody said, well, what is everybody wearing up there? Well, it, everybody's wearing all white. I mean, uh, it's it's not like a jumpsuit or anything like that. It, it's all white. And, you know, it's like long sleeves because I didn't see any roll. I didn't see their arms. I could see their hands, but I didn't. I, I could see their hands and uh, their feet are cut. Your feet are covered. It doesn't look like tennis shoes, but it's white. And I was just. You know, that's I didn't really pay any attention to that, except for when I took that one small step forward and I was looking down to make sure that, you know, I could could walk where I was at. And but I mean, and that, like I said, I've never I've seen pictures of Woodstock and all these massive gatherings and stuff here on Earth. They're nothing compared to what's up there. I mean, because it's as far as you can see, that's all you see. And except for that city, it's off to the right. And that's that's all I could see. And so it, it's crowded. <laughs> it's a big place. <laughs> what I think is cool about Elvis's message is that 
we all have the opportunity to visit him as well. Oh yeah, I well, figured. Waiting on people. I mean, people up, your loved ones are up there waiting mm-hmm. on you. You know, I mean, they don't want you to come up there until it's your time. Right. You know, and then that, that's why he gave me that message. You know, you know, because he, you know, it was like, I love you, but now tell my uh, family, friends, and fans I love them, and I'll see them when they get here. And it was like, okay, <laughs> you know, and so I had, I just felt that that need, you know, that I need, I, I got to share this. I mean, Elvis wanted me to share it, but you know, God, is this what you really want me to do? Because I, I don't know how most people feel when they come out of a near death experience, you know, I, with me though, I, I felt like, am I supposed to share this or what am I supposed to do with this? I, I wasn't sure, you know, and that's why I prayed real, very hard about it. I mean, I, I'm talking about get on your knees and pray hard. That's how I, I prayed. What am I supposed to do with this? I mean, what am I, you know, what do I do with this information I've got? And that's, you know, when I said, you know, that that one morning about 3 a.m., I was awoken and it said, you're supposed to share it. The same voice that said, no doubt, no fear. Okay. Then it became clear for me. Since the experience, have you seen Elvis in dreams? A couple of times. Was he still appearing at 25 years old? Yes. And the dreams are kind of are kind of funny because it, it's just like, "How you doing, Billy?" And that's all he says. "You doing okay?" "Yeah, I'm doing great." Elvis. "Okay, just checking on you." And that's it. I mean, that, that's you know, nobody's ever asked me that. It just this has just come to me because he has, you know, I've seen him a couple of times, and that's basically all he says. Is, "How you doing, Billy?" "I'm doing good." "Okay, I'm just checking on you." "Okay." So I guess that's his way. I'm, I'm watching out for you. <laughs> so. Have you noticed since your experience that you have any new abilities that would be considered psychic-like? No. Uh, the, the One of the things that's, I know, one of the things that, that has happened since, and this happened maybe two years ago, um, I was, it was almost like a dream, but I was, it was revealed to me that a little bit of God lives in everybody on earth. And what I mean by that is, and sometimes, I mean, people that aren't Christian or what, you know, people that seeking answers and stuff, all of a sudden a stranger comes up to you and says, gives you the words that you've been wanting to hear. And you, you didn't even say anything to this person to trigger those words. Well, that's God communicating with you right there. He's He's giving you the answer that you just you've been asking for, or praying for, or, or you just sitting there thinking to yourself, "Well, nobody really knows" or anything like that. And somebody just comes up, and says something to you, and it triggers that thought, you know, that you've been thinking or that you've been worried about or what concerned about or whatever. And it's it, all of a sudden you're at ease. Well, that's God right there talking. He's God is one of the things I have learned since. God's always there to talk to. All you got to do, I mean, there's never a busy signal when you talk to him. He's there. He's listening. All you got to do is just talk. And people say, well, what do you mean, Billy? I, you know, I don't know how to pray. Well, I tell them, well, you don't have to get on your knees and pray. You just sit there and talk, get in a quiet room or whatever and just talk to him like you're talking to some your best friend over the phone. And do that. He'll talk to you. But, I mean, the, the thing that him revealing that is made the world a lot easier for me to live in because you know 
I mean, with with the way things are today, and, and I'm not a political person. I don't want to get off on any of this, but I mean, what's dividing the world today? The media. They've got us questioning. I mean, there's two sides, and we're stuck in the middle. All of us that aren't in the media, we're 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 getting bombarded by all this stuff, this information, and everything else is getting and it's confusing us. Like all this racial stuff that we went through back in the 60s and 70s, we had all that stuff resolved. Why are we going back through it again? Because the media is wanting to, I mean, they're trying to make us live in fear. I mean, the fear is the worst thing in the world to live in. I mean, this is a great, big, wonderful world. And if you look at for the good stuff in the world, it, it gets a lot better than it is right now. And then people, well, I don't know what to do, Billy. Well, you know, first thing you got to do is, it's like they say, you know, clean up your own, work on your own backyard first, you know, work on you, getting you, getting you set, get your mind right and go out there and help other people. That's what we're here for. We're all here to help other people along their journey in life. And that's what we're here for. It's that simple. And when you do, when you start thinking about others and taking, helping them, then guess what? Your worries and cares start leaving you. All that leaves you. Because you're more consumed in helping other people along the way instead of making confusing people. Because that's the worst thing, you know, and who's the master of that? You know, the devil. Do you think that this experience, seeing Elvis again, resolved any past grief that you had oh, of the yeah. loss of him? Oh, yeah. Before, I I would go, to, go through Graceland and... You know, everything would be fine, you know, going through the house and taking people through and giving them a tour of Graceland and show, you know, hey, this is what happened in this room and this room. But when we get to that grave site, I could never, I mean, it was just so hard. And so, you know, it was just a burden. You know, I, I, I couldn't stand the thoughts that I'm standing there looking down at a man that loved me. You know, I lost a brother. I mean, I didn't see Elvis like everybody else does, you know, the big superstar, because when I came in, he's like, I was only seven years old. I didn't know what Elvis was, or I didn't know what Hound Dog or anything else was. So I had no idea in, anything about that. I, so I just grew up with him as a big brother. And when he passed away, it was so sudden and tragic. You know, it, it devastated me and because there were so many more things I wanted to do with him. I mean, you know, I'd only got to spend 17 years with him, you know, from the time I was seven till I was 24. And I mean, I could never put Elvis and the word death in the same sentence because it just, no, this guy's going to outlive everybody. And then when he passed away, it, like I said, I mean, I, I didn't know how to grieve when I was 24 years old. So I did what, you know, what I knew to do was, you know, turn to alcohol and drugs. And then that went on for about 10 years, you know, and then he came to me in a dream once. And in the dream, I, I was just talking to him about just, you know, football and cars and stuff. And then all of a sudden I just said, what does it feel like to be dead? And he looked at me and said, don't you know? I woke straight up. I'll, okay, I'm going in a rehab right now. <laughs> and I did. I put myself in a rehab and straightened my life out. And uh, uh, and I'm, I'm glad I did, you know. I mean, life is a lot easier, you know, because... I mean, one of the things I found out when I was in there, I was I was talking to my counselor. He said, Billy, you know, your problem is, you know, you're you're trying to escape. You're 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 trying to run from yourself is what you're trying to do, basically. 
He said, you can't outrun yourself. You never will. He said, learn, learn to accept this fact. You're Elvis's brother and you always will be. Embrace it. You know, it's share the good times you had with him. And that's when I, when that, when he told me that, I mean, my life turned around for the better. And I mean, it seems like the older I get, the better my life gets, you know, I'm going, wow, man, it's so great now. I wish I was 20 something years old again. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's been a heck of a journey and I, I'm, I'm loving every minute of it right now. I was looking at your racing Facebook page and there's a great story about how Elvis picked you up from school one day in a uh, pink Cadillac. Can you share that with everybody? Sure. Well, th this is shortly after we moved. Uh, when Elvis got back out of the army in March, he, uh, March of 1960, uh, that same month, my brothers and I moved into Graceland too. So I was being taken to school in the pink Cadillac. And I'm here again, I'm seven years old. I didn't know who Elvis was or what he did for a living because we were military brats and we didn't have a radio or anything like that. And we, we saw maybe TV several times and that was it, but we didn't see anything about Elvis. Yeah. Everything we pertaining in our world was military and that was it. So they said, uh, when you come out of school, look for the pink Cadillac. Like, okay. So one day I was coming out of school and this, you know, I, I started hearing kids whisper, oh, that, that was his stepbrother. You know, I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I didn't know what was happening. So one day I came out of school and it, I was going, I saw the car, but there was all these parents and you know, students around, but also teachers too. <laughs> they were standing around the car. And I, I, okay, what's this? So I'll kind of walk up toward the car and Elvis sees me. He reaches over and opens the door and I get in. What are you doing? He said, I'm signing autographs. I said, what's that? He said, that's where you just put your name on a piece of paper. I went, oh. And so I was just, I watched him for a few minutes and he finally said, would some, would, wouldn't any of you kids like my little brother's autograph too? And there was all these little squeals. Yeah, yeah, you know. So he hands me a piece of paper and I reach in my book bag and I pull out this red crown and I'm, I'm learning how to write my name now. So I write Billy. It wasn't in cursive. <laughs> so I put Billy on it, hand it back. And so I signed a few more and then Elvis said, okay, I'm sorry, we got to go. You, you all know Billy just got out of school. So, you know, he needs to, you know, go home and eat and take care of his homework. And he's all the people said, oh, okay. And, you know, a couple of the older girls said, if you ever need a babysitter, let us know. He said, I will, sweetie. And they all squealed, you know, I was just, what is this? And I, so as we're driving away, I'm trying to process everything that just happened in my little seven-year-old brain. I just said, are you famous or something? He kind of laughed. He said, well, some people think I am. So here I'm going. I didn't know what to equate it to. So I just said, are you more famous than Mickey Mouse? And he laughed again. He said, some people think I am. He said, I'll tell you what. I'll get daddy to play some of my records for you and play some of my movies for you. Okay. I said, okay, that'd be neat. And he just, he kind of reached over and pulled me over next to him. And we drove up to Graceland that way. And so, you know, the, one of the great things about my, me, Ricky and David, that's my two younger brothers, our relationship with Elvis. I think he really, he, he loved the fact that we didn't know who he was because everybody else that came into his life, they knew who he was. We didn't. And so that's how we grew up. Not, we, we didn't see the superstar, but we did later in life. 
but I mean, by then it was too late. And what I mean by that was, okay, that's just Elvis to us, you know? I mean, that's just my brother up there doing that, you know? But uh, I'll never forget the first thing I, everything he's, first thing he ever said to us was the night we got to Graceland. It was, this was in uh, March of 1960. Uh, we, we arrive at Graceland, it was at nighttime, and we walk in the back of the house. And uh, Elvis, I mean, Vernon said, where's, where's Elvis? They said, oh, he's downstairs shooting pool. So we go downstairs and we go down the stairs and then we take a right. And then all I saw was just a big crowd of people. And I heard a boy say eight ball in the corner pocket. And he must have made the shot because everybody started going, yeah, Elvis, hey, you know. And then after he made the shot, everything just kind of clears. And he's standing at the end of the pool table. And I'm looking at him. Oh, he's kind of neat. You know, I'm picking up this great vibe from him as just as a kid. And he puts his, he smiles, he puts the pool key down, walks over. He says, what do we got here, daddy? He said, these are your new little brothers, Elvis. And he reached down and picks all three of us up at once. That's how small we were. I was seven, Rick was six, and David was four. He said, he picked us all three up and he's looking at us. He said, daddy, always one little brother. Now I've got three. And that was the beginning of an amazing journey with him. I watched a documentary on him probably about 10 or 15 years ago, but one thing that I thought was so amazing about him is that he was such a generous guy. His generosity is world famous. Uh, I mean, I've seen him give cars and money to people he didn't even know. I mean, you know, just I mean, I, there was one time he wanted to, I was just sitting around the house and I was probably about 17 or 18 years old. So this was about 70, 71. He said, let's go for a ride, Billy. That's one of the things he loved to do when he was home in Memphis is just ride around Memphis. I mean, that was it. This was his hometown. He loved to just, you know, see how it was growing and just kind of get out. And fans, the, the, the people here in Memphis, they, they accepted Elvis as their own. You know, that, that's Memphis's own son right there. So whenever they saw him, they didn't bother him. They, they just waved to him or something like that. I mean, one, one of my friends was telling me his his dad pulled up next to him. Elvis is on his motorcycle. And he pulls up, he looks up, he sees Elvis. He said, Elvis. And Elvis just kind of looks at him and goes, <laughs> and they both start laughing. <laughs> and that was it. And but so we're riding around this one day and he's we're just talking about football and life in general. And we see this, he sees this homeless man walking down the street the opposite direction. So when he sees the guy, he makes a U-turn. He says, hand me my wallet. I said, he says, hand me the money in my wallet. And uh, But I had to carry it for him because when I, when I say Elvis's wallet, it was so thick, you couldn't fold it. It had that much money in it. So I said, how much how, how much do you want? He said, all of it. So he took it all and stuck it down between his legs. And we pulled up to the gentleman. And he rolled the window down. And the guy just kind of looked at me. Mr. Presley, he said, yes, sir, but please call me Elvis. He said, Elvis, he shook his hand. He said, I've seen all your records. I mean, I've listened to all your records and I, you know, I used to have them all. And I've seen all your movies. He was just talking about, you know, how big of a fan he was. And Elvis said, okay, well, that, that's enough about me, sir. He said, what about you? He said, what's going on with you? He said, well, I'm a little bit down on my luck right now. He said, but you know, it's going to change. He said, I'm walking down here to the unemployment office right now. And, you know, I'll get a job here real soon. He said, you know, I know the Lord is going to take care of me and, you know, uh, things always work out. And so Elvis took the money and 
reached out to shake his hand. And when he did, the gentleman shook his hand. And he kind of, he kind of started, it was startled. He jumped back a little bit and he saw all that money. He just, and oh, Mr. President, he said, no, I told you to call me Elvis. He said, okay, Elvis, I can't take this money. He said, like I said, I'm just down on my luck. It's going to change. He said, sir, your luck changed today. He said, the guy started crying. And I get a little emotional when I think about this because I've never seen this kind of generosity before or since. And the guy just looked at him and said, God bless you, Mr. Presley. He said, sir, he already has. And I we drove away and went, Elvis, I've never seen that before. He said, Billy, what's the use of having all that money unless you share it with everybody? That's correct. If I ever get that rich, Elvis, I promise. But I don't have to be that way. I mean, I, I give money to people all the time, you know. I'm, I'm still one of those guys that when I go to the grocery store, you know, I'll tip them. You know, it surprises them. But here you go. Here's, here's some money. You know, give. If you do that, you know, makes you feel good. What's the best advice Elvis ever gave you? Love everybody. Love everybody as your brother and sister. Don't be, uh, we're, We all are. You never look at a person's skin color. You look at their heart. That's what you look at. You know, uh, I mean, and that's what we're supposed to do. I mean, is love everybody like your brother and sister. And that, that, I treat everybody like that. I mean, that's what he taught me a long time ago. Ever since I was seven years old up until I was 24, you know, it was, that was one of the main lessons right there is love everybody. And I mean, he did. He loved everybody. He, he he was the most loving, caring individual I've probably ever met. I would definitely say Elvis was a religious man, but would you also say he's a spiritual man? If they're not the same thing, it's kind of a different well, question. They, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah. I mean, you know, a Christian is what you say to people that go to church. Spiritual man is what you say when people don't believe. <laughs> so, yeah, he was very spiritual. Well, yeah, he was both. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Out of all the movies out there that are about Elvis, do you feel that any of them are accurate? No. Uh -uh. I knew this was going to come. I mean, I, I always get asked this question right here, especially about the new and the Baz movie. And, you know, there's, you know, for the fans, you know, I'm not, uh, it, as long as they like it, that's all that matters. You know, now, did I like it? No. And it, it, I mean, I'm happy the fans do. And here's why I don't care for it, because it's inaccurate. They did not show as a happy Elvis, love, fun-loving Elvis that I grew up with. They never showed one happy moment in that movie about him. And it, it, they, Elvis sure wouldn't have ever cussed like he did in front of his mom like that. And his dad was not like that at all. His dad was a very strong individual, a loving, he loved his son. And this, they made him some pathetic little character. You know, it was like, I didn't, who are these people? You know, there was other people in Elvis's lives and I know all the fans were saying they loved him. Oh, that was Colonel Parker's perspective. Well, how do they know? I mean, that was Baz's perspective. Colonel Parker didn't write a book. So where are they getting this perspective from? <laughs> you know, now this is the pro producer director's perspective. That's all it was. It's a nice little Elvis fantasy is all it is. The, the fun, loving, uh, loving character that I grew up with was not in that movie. No. 
I mean, he was far greater than that. I mean, when you got that kind of budget, if somebody was to come up to me and say, Billy, we got $85 million. Can you help us make a great movie? I'll make the greatest Elvis movie there ever was if you give me that kind of money. I'll show the real guy. And everybody, you know, they, well, they have to do poetic life. No, you don't. Elvis's life was so sensational. It was sensational enough without having try, everybody try to put their two cents worth in to make it even more sensational. No, <laughs> let's keep it real. And I mean, let the people, you know, see the real guy, not, you know, not just miserable, you know, character that, you know, was sitting there, please come back to Priscilla. No, that never happened. <laughs> that did not happen. No, that, that's, that, that door was closed and it, it stayed closed. There is a photo of you and your brothers on the, on your Facebook page, holding Lisa Marie as a baby. Yeah. Did you grow up? Um, you know, having a lot of contact and, and being with her as well? For the first nine years, I did. Up until, you know, uh, it was the last time I saw her was at uh, uh, my stepfather's funeral. But I was Uncle Billy. Yeah. She knew who I was. You know, that, that, that just, that, that pretty much devastated me because when I first sat down and started working on this book, my ghostwriter, my publisher, and everybody, we had this big meeting, and they said, who do you want to read this book, Billy? I said, Lisa Marie. They looked at me, why? I said, I want her to know her dad was a great man. You know, I don't know what she heard from Priscilla or anybody else. I know if she's gone based on what, what's been published about him and everything like that, she can't, that would be injustice for her. So I wanted her to be able to pick, be able to pick something up and go, you know what? My dad really was a great person. And I wanted her to see that. And so when she passed away, it devastated me. I mean, I, it was almost like losing Elvis again. I had to step away from everybody for about a week or two because I was just, you gotta be kidding me. I can't believe this. It's happening all over again. I mean, because I, I never thought, I thought I'd go before Lisa. I mean, she was so much younger than me. And, uh, you know, God bless her. And, you know, I, I feel sorry for her children and everything else that's going on, this big mess that's going on now with the estate and everything. And it's just like, you know, uh, you know, I, I've said some things before in the past and, it, you know, people said, you're crazy. And that, I think they're now starting to see, well, no, Billy's right. <laughs> you know, he's pretty spot on what he said about these people. You know, yes, I got no reason to sit there and, blow sunshine where it's not supposed to go. You know, I'm doing, I'm just telling the truth. That's all I'm doing. So. Since you live in Memphis, do you stop yeah. by Graceland very often? I go by there maybe two or three times a year. Now I, I haven't been back because of the weather, but now it's getting, it's getting nice. So my wife and I, we'll, we will go up and pay our respects to Lisa. Now I, I, I feel I owe her that, you know, yeah, I loved her. Just she was she was my niece, man. Uh, she was the the first niece I had, you know. So, did you ever see the movie about Elvis meeting President Nixon? <laughs> no, he told me about it. So, I mean, it's like people say, "Did you ever read this book or that book? Any or movies about Elvis?" No, I don't. I don't look at that stuff. I, only because ever since he's passed away. People have made him into pretty much a caricature of what he was really like. Yeah. 
And so I, I, I can't watch that or, or read it or anything like that. I mean, now he told me about it. Uh, I mean, I was there. I mean, everybody, why did all of a sudden he just decide to go? Well, here's the, here's the story behind it. Him and Priscilla got into a disagreement. This was right before Christmas time. I don't know really what it was about, but I was sitting in the house and I heard him. And I always said, well, that's enough for me. And he slammed the door. I kind of walked, what's going on? He just left. So they everybody thought, we, he, oh, he's taking a ride. Yeah, he took a ride, all right. He drove to the airport, didn't have any money or didn't take his wallet with him, but they knew who he was. So at the ticket counter, he said, can I write you an IOU? And the guy said, yes, you can. <laughs> so he wrote an IOU. He said, I want to go to Washington, D.C. And then when he was on the plane, he decided, okay, I want to go see Nixon and get me a badge. While I'm <laughs> that's how his mind worked. And that's how it all came about. It was not premeditated. It was just a disagreement that that's where he ended up going. Now, he told me when he was there, he was in there talking to Nixon. I said, so what was it like? He said, oh, he's okay, you know. He said, I was more interested in getting a badge. And he said, you know, he said, I saw this painting of uh, George Washington. I think it was the original painting of George Washington. It looks like it's unfinished down at the bottom. And Elvis, he said he was standing there looking at it. And President Nixon walks up to him and says, Elvis just, man, he dressed kind of funny, didn't he? And uh, President Nixon looked at him and said, you know, because Elvis has this crushed velvet suit on with a cape and all this stuff. And, uh, Mr. Nixon said, well, we could say pretty much say the same thing about you, Mr. President. He said, he said, sir, you got your show to run. I got mine. And that was always, I said, you said that to Nixon? He said, yes. Oh, God, Elvis. <laughs> Only you would do that to the president, you know? Were you close with him all the way to the end? And were you like a part of the Memphis Mafia? Yeah, I worked for him for about a year, year and a half. I mean, now, I first started working for him in 1969, but I wasn't on the road. What I was doing was just uh, like a groundskeeper. I was 16 because I was I was wanting an allowance. Now, Vernon didn't believe in allowance. <laughs> no, if you want, you know, because I remember when I was 13, can I get an allowance? No, but I'll get you a lawnmower and you can go around here and start mowing yards. So that's how uh, he had me working when I was 13, 14 years old. So when I was 16, uh, Elvis said, let's put him on the payroll day. And uh, El Vernon looked at him and said, what is he going to do? He, said, he can wash my cars twice a week. Said, well, how much do we pay? And he said, We'll give him two hundred dollars a week. He said, "What?" You know, Bert, he said, no, Daddy, no, no. He said, "We'll get, we'll give him a hundred dollars a week." So, and that's so. When I was sixteen, that's what I. That was my first job. It's kind of neat when I look at when the IRS sends that stuff. You first, who was your employer? EPE was my employee. <laughs> but uh, then, when I was eighteen, I, I went on the road with him for about a year, year and a half, and uh, that lifestyle just wasn't for me. Uh, I, I was more of a homebody. And I mean, the only reason I went, asked to go to work for him anyway, I didn't really ask. My brothers, Rick and David, my two younger brothers were working for him before me. I was, like I said, a homebody. I was I was happy with just working around, the, you know, the grounds at Graceland. And I was really into drag racing and stuff. And so, and hanging out with my friends. So uh, that's what I did, especially in the summertime. And uh, I did quite a bit of drag racing back then. So that's what made me happy. But they both wanted me to come to work for him. And they, you know, finally one day uh, they called me up to the room. This was after the uh, 
let's see. Oh, New York, when he did uh, Madison Square Garden. This is right after that show. They came back and they was home for a while. And they called me to the room. I go up and there's Rick and David there. And I went, uh oh, what's happening? What's happening here? And Ella said, okay, Billy, it's that time. You got to make a decision. I said, what do you mean? Uh, we want you to get on the road with us. And I kind of look at Rick and David. I knew they put him up to it, you know. And he said, so uh, he said, Rick. So Rick had his hand behind his back and he pulls it out. He's got this jewelry case and Elvis takes it from Rick, opens it, takes the TCB out, said, come here. And he puts it around my neck. I felt like I was being knighted. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, sir, you know, what, why do I need to? He said, he said, there's, he said, welcome to the tribe after he put it on me. That's what he said. He said, there's no turning back now. I said, I got you. And so uh, I worked for him for about a year and a half and then uh, I quit and started working at the airport uh, uh, as an assistant jet mechanic. And I worked there up until he passed away. Would you feel that Elvis was more of a brother figure in your life or a father figure? He was both. Um, he took a very active participation in, in our upbringing. I heard him many times when uh, Vernon would want to correct us or somebody would say something. He'd just kind of put his hand up and go, nope, those are my boys. I'll take care of this. And he'd have a talk with us. He, he never raised his voice at us. The whole, the whole 17 years. He never hit us. Um, he had a way of explaining things to a, a kid to, where they would understand it. And the, the little light would come on on your head and you'd it, then all of a sudden it'd dawn on you what he's trying to say. And that you, oh, I got it. I got it now. And once you see that little light came on, he'd go, okay, that's it. That's all we got to talk about. And you're just like, wow, that's the easiest thing it's ever, you know. But he was... He was such a loving individual that, you know, he didn't have a mean bone in his body. I mean, he, he couldn't be a tough guy. He could have been if he wanted, but he, he just didn't have it within him, his heart, to be that kind of person. That's why he had those guys working for him. <laughs> so he didn't have to be that way. They could be that way. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about Elvis? Most misunderstood? Yeah, what are the things that, you know, people misunderstand about him or because they don't know the real him? I guess it would be the, his faith. Because everybody, every, all the stories everybody's heard about Elvis was, you know, this wild, crazy guy that loved women. You know, that's and, and a lot of people judge him based on what they've heard and stuff like that. But he really was a Christian individual. Now, when I say that, everybody says, but he didn't live like one. Now, when they didn't say that, okay, now you're judged. I mean, maybe there's a book you ought to pick up called the Bible where it says, judge ye lest you be judged. Don't judge. You, we're not here to judge anybody. You think about your, clean up your own backyard before you start casting stones and stuff like this. And, you know, talking about another person's life. But he really was, you know, because everybody says, where did the generosity and all this other stuff come from? It came from the Bible because it says in the Bible, the Lord loves a generous giver. That's the most generous giver I've ever met in my life. And so he really was a God-fearing man, even though it may not look like it in some of the ways he, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a Christian, but who, there is no such thing as a perfect Christian. You know, that, that's why Jesus came and died for us, you know, so we don't have to try to be perfect. 
you know all we can do is just what we can do be the best person we can be and believe you know that's it but i mean it answers a lot of the questions that people have when they start saying you know why was he so generous why was he so loving why was this and this and this just pick up the book and you'll read it <laughs> this says so that's what you're supposed to be and he tried to be that way speaking of books your book is called the faith of elvis yes how did you come up with that title uh, I was sitting down with my publishers and, you know, my, it was my idea. I was going to call it, I wanted to call it the Elvis education. And I said, what do you mean by that? I said, well, who pretty much raised me? Elvis. And that was my education by him. And, you know, but they said, well, we kind of like the faith of Elvis. And you're the guys, you know, with the money, whatever you want to call it, it's fine with me. Because I already knew what the stories were going to be and stuff. So, you know, no, none of the stories were changed. It was, you know, but they pretty much decided they liked that title better. What was it about Elvis that just made him so magnetic to everybody? If I knew that, I'd do it myself. <laughs> I, think what, I think what it was, was his sincerity. I mean, it, he was transparent. I mean, what you saw was what you got. I mean... He was exactly like he was in the movies. Now, I got a perfect example of that because in the movies, he always he was always the, you know, you know, he, he, he didn't take charity, you know, he he was, you know, the good guy. And then one day we were riding horses down to Circle G. This was around 1967, so 60, 67, 68. And we were standing at Circle G down in Mississippi and we was coming back uh, to Memphis. And we was on the highway, Highway 51 back then. No, it was Elvis Presley Boulevard. So we, we were going by these places. He said, I, he said, I'd like to stop and get a burger. And the driver said, well, you want to go through the drive-thru? He said, no, let's go in and eat. So there was about seven of us in the limousine, and there was a couple of cars following us. So we pulled in. We go in. And I just happened to know the, pe the people that own this uh, burger place. It was called Lotta Burger. And Mr. Cooper... I, the only reason I knew him because I went to school with his daughter. And so we went in and Mr. Cooper was working that night. And I introduced Mr. Cooper to Elvis and Mr. Cooper was really happy that Elvis was there. Elvis said, "Can we? is it okay if we pull a few tables together? He said, we got a little bit of a crowd. And he said, yes, sir, you know, I'll help you. So we pull all the tables together and we sit down. And we he, he takes our order and he goes. And we're sitting there talking about the day's events, you know, riding horses and stuff. And then we, we noticed this guy come walking in and we didn't notice anything in particular. It was different about him until he got in the, inside the place. And then he was staggering a little bit and then he started getting loud. Next thing we know, he starts cussing. I don't give a blank blank. He said, I want my order. And Elvis looks at it and he stands up and red and sunny as bodyguards go to get up. Elvis puts his hand up and now I got this. He walks over so we're all kind of sitting there listening. And Elvis just says, uh, can I help you anything, sir? And he said, I don't need anybody's help. He, I guess he didn't recognize Elvis at first. And he said, uh, uh, you're Elvis. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, this guy told me I got to wait for this order because, you know, some big order. He said, he looks over at Mr. Cooper and said, Mr. Cooper, take care of this gentleman's order right here first. He said, I tell you what, I'll even pay for it. And I guess that's when he kind of recognized Elvis. He, but Elvis had him in his cowboy hat and he's, he looked like he'd just come out of the movie Chiro. So the guy I was looking, he said, 
Ah, you're Elvis. If it ain't Elvis himself, Elvis said, yes, sir. Elvis reached out to shake his hand. He said, I don't want your hand. He said, the only thing I'm going to do, and he reared back and he swung. And Elvis just did an outward parry, took him by the wrist, and pulled his arm back behind his, behind his back, grabbed him by the collar, and was going through the door, but his face kind of hit the door first, and boom, and he pushed him on out and walks him to his car. And Elvis reaches down, opens the car, turns him around, puts him in. We didn't hear what he said. He said something to him. He walks back in, and when he does, everybody stands up from the table. We go, yay, Elvis. You know, Elvis takes a bow, you know, he comes over and sits down. That was cool, Elvis. That was cool. And Mr. Cooper came over and said, Mr. Presley, he said, no, call me Elvis. He said, Elvis, he said, for that, he said, I'm going to take care of your food. He said, sir, what for? All I did was take out the trash. Hmm. <laughs> that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. You know, I'm just the guy was just a phenomenal person. I mean, what a role model for a kid growing up, you know. For people who don't know a lot about you, you are also into eye racing. Eye racing, yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Um one of the dreams I had when I was growing up with Elvis, and he saw it at an early age. That was our bond when the 17 years I was with him. The bond that we shared was uh, fast cars and driving fast. So he he saw that and instilled it in me. You know, he 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 was my 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 mentor and my my driving coach and everything else. In fact, he had me driving the little racing go karts that he had when I was like thirteen or fourteen years old. And then all through my life, you know, this the seventeen years I was with him. You know, I, I never went to him. And in, in fact, I, I discussed this with my brother and some other people not long ago, that if I had gone to him when he was alive and said, hey, Elvis, I want to start a race team, you know, let's do this. He would have done it. But see, I could never ask Elvis for anything material. I never asked for a car or money. I never asked for anything. The only thing I ever asked Elvis for in my life was advice. And that was it. In fact, uh, the last conversation we had about this racing was on August 14th, 1977, two days before he passed away. Um, I was talking to him about it and he said, Billy, never give up on your dream. You know, always follow it. It, it you know, it may not happen right away, but it will someday. So never give up on it. And so, I mean, Elvis was always an encourager. I mean, whenever he talked to people, that's what he always did. I've seen him talk to fans, you know, the guy might be digging a ditch for a living, but when he walked away, he would be standing just as tall as the president of the United States, because that's the way Elvis was, the way he was with people. So um, when Elvis passed away, that, that whole thing just kind of left me for a while. And it was just, you know, my dreams of doing it, I kind of gave up on it. And then I found out years later, I mean, much year, many years later, uh, about 20 something years after that, I just, you know, I'm, after I started cleaning up my act, you know, after what happened with him and everything, and then me getting my life back in order in the 90s, I went to a Buck Becker's racing school. Uh, that's where they actually get in. It. Now, Buck's school is a little bit different where in most schools, it's just ride-alongs and the experience, you know, you get in a car and you drive it, but there they coach you and stuff like this. So I went to the beginner's class. And uh, when I was in, the, I, I I didn't tell them who I was. I just was doing it. 
So after my first session there, I, I was getting out of the car and guy reached in and was taking the steering wheel off and I was got it, climbed out of the car and they said, everybody, where'd you learn how to drive like that? And I told him, I said, Elvis taught me. And they got, everybody's kind of, yeah, who is this guy? I said, you got a computer handy? And they said, yeah, I've got one right here in the office. Why? I said, just go Google my name real quick. About 15 minutes later, the guy comes back. He's, yeah, he is who he says he is. <laughs> and they said, he taught you how to drive like that? I said, yeah. I said, why? They said, because Billy, you, you're driving just like we think. That's why we asked you, where are you racing at right now? And I said, I'm not racing anywhere. I just want to see if I still got it. And so I asked after that session, uh, it was a two or three day session. After that, I said, can I come back for your intermediate course? And they said, no, you're coming back to the advanced class. I said, what's that? And they said, now you're going to put you out there with some other cars and do actual racing uh, scenarios. I said, okay. So I went and did that. And, you know, they just said, man, okay. They said, we've had a lot of people come through here. They gave me this long list of all these famous drivers that went through the school. He said, Buck Baker is talking to me now. He said, there's one, he said, you, you probably heard this name before and he's popular right now. He said, Jeff Gordon. I said, yeah. He said, Billy, you're better than this guy. I said, well, thank you. And I learned all this from Elvis now. So Buck was said, you know, I'm going to try to put together a deal. We're going to see if we can get a sponsor and put you in ARCA and all this stuff like this. And so I said, all right. So I waited for some phone calls and stuff, and it didn't turn about turn around. And so I got a friend of mine that was working for Petty Enterprises said, if you want to get into stock car racing, you got to live here in North Carolina, Charlotte. So I moved into Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was making my rounds, meeting everybody. And I found out the racing industry is a lot like the music industry. <laughs> There's a lot of talk <laughs> and nothing to back it up. So after a couple of years, I just said, well, I guess it's not going to happen. So then I meet this guy that's got a clothing apparel and he says, uh, uh, I'll sponsor you if you get a race car. So, I mean, I was living in Nashville at the time and Nashville got this great little uh, five, five eighths of a mile high bank oval. And I said, yeah, I'll do this. Heck yeah, I'd be happy right here. So I go out and buy the car and then I call the guy up. And when I did, he says, uh, well, sorry, Billy, uh, my clothing company's just kind of gone down. I said, it'd been nice if you'd have told me this, you know? And uh, so I got, I ended up stuck with a car that I couldn't really do anything with because I spent most of my money on getting it. And I, I turned a few laps with it at the track and uh, ended up selling it. Pretty much gave up on it again until... After my near-death experience, uh, I was forced into retirement when that happened. So I said, I can't just sit around the house. I got to do something. So I did a lot of research, and I found out about iRacing, which is iRacing is for online racing, internet racing is what it is. And they've got all these different style types of racing. You can do NASCAR, Indy, uh, Formula One, uh, you know, these uh, – I don't know what the, the dirt tracks and they got the ones that's like arena cross, you know, that you can do with the trucks and stuff like that. You can, all different styles. And so NASCAR was where I was at. So I did some research on it, got involved and I got a sponsor that's here in Memphis that's performance distributors. And Steve Davis is the president and he's a big Elvis fan. He said, I want my car on Elvis's brother's car. My name. I said, okay. So we worked out a deal, and so uh, I'm now a full-time 
professional sim racer <laughs> on iRacing. That's great. I called it hound dog racing as a tribute to my brother Elvis. That's fantastic. You got a big TCB on the hood. And <laughs> I'm flying around that representing. After watching this podcast, people may want to reach out to you and ask you questions. Are you open to that? Yeah, they can reach me uh, on Hound Dog Racing, the Facebook page, or my racing league page, which is Raceland Shootout Series. I, I named my, I started a league, I started a league, and it's called, I call it again as a tribute to Elvis, you know, in I Racing, it's lowercase I and then capital R Racing. Well, this is lowercase G, Raceland, Raceland Shootout Series. There you so, go. Yeah. So uh, they can reach out either one of those and, you know, send friend requests. I mean, I'm almost up to 5,000, but if, if people send me messages and stuff like that, I, I always answer them. I'll get back to them. Billy, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? Oh, God, I mean, I got so many. Um, the only one, I guess, that I'll have to, to just, you know, push a little bit harder is, you know, love everybody. You know, that, that's why we're here. You know, if, if we, if we forget, how to, forget how to hate and learn how to love. I mean, the, the, one of the worst words in the whole world is the word hate. That's a four-letter word. It, it, it's the one word Elvis, I'd have to say, had a strong, he didn't like to use that term. He had a strong dislike for, I'll just say that. So let's forget how to hate and learn how to love again. Because trust me, we can all make a difference in this world. We're all unique in our own right way. And we're all here to help each other. And that's what, and don't be afraid to re ask for help. You know, I mean, it, you'll never get it unless you ask for it, you know? So don't be afraid to ask for it, you know, if you need it. And don't think that you're all by yourself in this world. I mean, now, one of the little tidbits of information he gave me is this, thing he, he taught me called the universal law of insanity. That's what he called it. He said, the world is crazy, and so are you. Once you realize this, then you'll get along with everybody in it. <laughs> because we all have these crazy, insane thoughts. You're not the only one that's ever had them. We, everybody's had them. You know, it's what you do with them. So ignore some of those thoughts. Don't act out on some of these things you think about. Just... Think about the good things, you know, and that, I mean, life gets better for you. Billy, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. Hey, thanks, Jeff. It's been a great, you know, I've had a great time doing this. A pleasure was all mine. Yeah. If you ever want to do it again, let me know. All right. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.